Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. everyone. Happy New Year. It is Friday, January 8th, and we have a great interview for you with Drive Capital coming up a little later in the podcast. But first, a little while before we sat down here, Donald Trump was permanently banned from Twitter, which is pretty incredible. The decision was apparently made today after he tweeted that he would not attend President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration on January 20th, and also after he tweeted that the 75 million great American patriots who voted for him will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. It's neither a surprise that he won't attend the inauguration, nor was his confrontational tone today shocking. But considering the events of earlier this week, Trump painting himself yet again as a kind of savior, protector to his base, rather than a sociopathic narcissist who would push them all off a cliff if it suited him, was enough to worry Twitter. According to a statement published this afternoon, the company said that after a close review of his recent tweets and the context around them, specifically how they're being received and interpreted on and off Twitter, it has permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. It's tempting to joke that Trump is probably on a toilet somewhere trying to figure out how to download Parler, the social network favored by uber conservatives and extremists, but that's getting harder to do. Parler, which was used to plan and coordinate the scary scene earlier this week at the U.S. Capitol building, was just suspended by the Google Play Store, and it's facing suspension by Apple over its inability or unwillingness to moderate what's said and done on the platform. Where that leads Trump and his most impassioned supporters is the big question. In the meantime, it's hard to give Twitter too much credit for today's decision. The platform gave Trump a lot of rope for a very long time, as has Facebook, leading to a huge amount of misinformation in this country. It isn't clear what the right approach would have been, but giving him a megaphone without consequences until fairly recently clearly hasn't worked out so well for this country. And this chapter isn't over yet, though this segment is. On to our next story. Bitcoin is up almost 40% since the new year, reaching a new high today of almost $42,000. As I am speaking to you right now, it is trading at around $40,160 per coin. Yesterday, B of A Global Research questioned whether Bitcoin's rise represents, and I quote, the mother of all bubbles. Indeed, Bitcoin's current price puts it in rarefied air. If Bitcoin is indeed a bubble, it would rank second only to the tulip mania of the 17th century. Bitcoin's rally this year has pushed the collective cryptocurrency market capitalization in excess of $1 trillion. Plenty of seasoned folks are betting that Bitcoin is here to stay. In addition to J.P. Morgan Chase, whose researchers argue that the digital currency could be valued at $146,000 if Bitcoin challenges gold as a good place to shelter one's assets, famed public market investors such as Paul Tudor Jones and Bill Miller regard the cryptocurrency as a good inflation hedge, particularly in light of the Fed's intervention in the U.S. economy in response to the pandemic. Among the currency's most ardent proponents is social capital's Chamath Palihapitiya, who has promised on Twitter to buy the Hamptons and convert it to sleepaway camps for kids, working farms, and low-cost housing when Bitcoin's price hits $150,000. What do you think? Is Bitcoin just a bubble? Tweet your thoughts to at StrictlyVC. We'll run the most interesting responses in next week's episode. 
Today, Forbes announced that Elon Musk is the richest person in the world, officially surpassing Jeff Bezos with a total net worth of $189.7 billion. We say officially because Bloomberg reported earlier this week that Musk had overtaken Bezos, falsely, according to Forbes. In addition to Bezos, Musk is now worth more than ExxonMobil, the oil company? According to Forbes, Musk has added $165 billion to his fortune since March 2020, when he was worth $24.6 billion. Much of that increase is thanks to Tesla's skyrocketing share price, which rose more than 720% in 2020. It has gained another 20% in the first week of 2021. By comparison, Bezos has just $185 billion to his name. Musk is set to qualify for options to buy another 16.9 million shares of Tesla early this year, according to company filings. Those options would be worth $12.3 billion at the share's current value. Of course, Bezos would still be worth more than Musk if he hadn't divorced his wife, Mackenzie Scott, last year. For what it's worth, Mackenzie is the hero of this story. In December, she announced that she had given $4 billion of her fortune to charity. As for Musk, not so much. To date, he has not sold or given away one share of Tesla stock. Up next, our interview with Drive Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. All of the innovations of the digital economy have made developing and launching new brands that gain early awareness and early share more challenging than ever. Developing a brand name that is distinctive and memorable is now fundamental to success. Lexicon Branding has been creating game-changing names like Sonos, Impossible Foods, Microsoft's Azure, and Intel's Pentium for decades. For more information, please visit lexiconbranding.com today. Our featured interview with Drive Capital, the Columbus, Ohio-based venture firm co-founded by former Sequoia Capital investors Mark Kwame and Chris Olson. Though it's trendy to leave California right now and to broadcast this decision on Twitter, they rather more quietly left Silicon Valley eight years ago as Kwame was convinced by his friend, the Republican politician John Kasich, to come and lead a jobs development program for the state of Ohio. It was supposed to be a temporary gig, but Kwame fell in love with the region and convinced Olson to join him. And they don't appear to be looking back. In fact, they argue there's so much regional deal flow that they can't fund all the companies that merit big checks. As you'll hear Olson say, they're now seeing 7,000 inbound deals a year, and they could use help supporting more of the talented founders they're seeing and want to fund. In fact, they just had their first major exit in Root Insurance, a five-year-old Columbus, Ohio-based company that went public in November and currently boasts a market cap of $4.8 billion. Drive might quibble with the word exit, Kwame and Olson say they haven't sold a single share of the company, but it's certainly looking like it'll be a big win. Their 26.6% stake in the business is currently valued at $1.2 billion. More from that conversation right here. We're so happy today to have Mark Kwame and Chris Olson of Drive Capital joining us. Thank you both so much. I've been interested in Drive for a long time. I'm a native Ohioan. I went to Ohio State. You moved from Menlo Park, Sequoia Capital, top of the food chain and venture capital, to start your firm in 2013. For listeners who haven't tracked the story, tell us why you bailed on California and headed to the Midwest when you did. 
it's kind of this interesting serendipity of events. I'll never forget the first meeting I had at Sequoia Capital, where there was a small table. There were about 12 people sitting around it. And this is a firm that at the time had already invested in Google and Oracle and Cisco and Yahoo. And the astonishing thing was there was a company on the agenda that the partnership was in love with. There was just one problem, which was that it was based in Petaluma which was 10 miles north of San Francisco. There was a a strong belief that you had to be within a bicycle ride of the office if you were going to invest in startup companies. And also there was a belief that the only density of talented engineers was in Silicon Valley. That was circa 2006. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was that was about to be broken because the infrastructure that was a very specialized engineering set was now put into the cloud. Mm -hmm. And with the wave of a credit card and an internet connection, anyone could have access to that infrastructure. And so no longer did you have to put your company in Silicon Valley. Now you had the opportunity to put it wherever the company ought to be successful, which the, the prevailing advice was you ought to put it as close to your customers as possible. And so Sequoia believed very heavily in this and went out and has obviously transformed dramatically to now what is a global platform capable of investing in all kinds of places in a completely unrelated sequence of events. This guy, John Kasich, gets elected governor of Ohio. And Mark, who was the general partner in Sequoia, was asked to come out and run economic development for the the state of Ohio for six months. How did you know John Kasich? I was visiting my congressman at the Capitol in DC and it was 1996. And I happened to bump into him, happened to be on the speaker's balcony. And uh, we struck it off from there. And then he decided to run for president the first time in 99. And I helped him out. And that's kind of how we got started. And then when he left Congress, he went to Lehman Brothers and we did a lot of work together over the next 10 years. And so when he went to Ohio, he said, I'd love for you to come help me with my economic development. No, no. Mark had never been to Ohio. So he was asking me, what do I do for fun when I get to Ohio? And Chris, you're a native Ohioan? Yeah, I grew up in Cincinnati. Okay. And so he asked me and I, I very quickly told him, come back. <laughs> That's what you do because there's not much to do in Ohio. What was fascinating was about a year later, uh, I was out looking at a company for Sequoia in Columbus and decided to get together with Mark over dinner. And he's like, what's going on in Sequoia? And I was like, oh, it's amazing. We're going to these international places. It's awesome. It's fantastic. And I was like, what's going on in Ohio? And Mark was like, it's amazing. <laughs> I was like, okay, not falling for it. Tell me like, what's, what makes Ohio amazing? And he's like, well, you would expect this place to be the burned out factories and the rust belt and all that stuff. And there's definitely some of that here, but what's amazing is there is an enormous amount of money that's spent on research here. In Silicon Valley, the venture dollar ratio to research dollars is massively too many VC dollars for too little research. The opposite is true here in Ohio. This is more what Silicon Valley looked like in the late 1990s. And so you should leave Sequoia and you should start a venture fund in Ohio. And I was like, nope. Not falling for it. Had too much to drink. There's no way I'm believing that data. And it's a terrible idea. And Mark was like, Well, what makes it such a terrible idea? I was like, well, Everyone knows that that's not true. Like, well, look at the data. Show me. And so I, I was very much a numbers guy and, and still am and, and went and started looking up the data. And so I was like, Look, I'm just going to prove to you. And he was like, Well, how much bigger is the economy of Ohio compared to Turkey? And I was like, 
it's smaller, obviously. And I looked it up and I was like, crap, wrong. Ohio is bigger. And then all of a sudden it was like, what's the, how big is the economy of the Midwest? Well, it'd be the fourth largest economy in the world. It's bigger than Brazil. It's bigger than Russia. It's bigger than India. Wow. Uh, and then it has this legacy educational infrastructure that's been invested in for hundreds of years that is now producing more engineers than any other corner of the planet. And so it created this flywheel of research where we kept looking up pieces of data. And every time we looked it up, it said the opposite of what we had expected. And while other markets like Austin or Miami now or New York were getting lots of fanfare, certainly nobody was writing about Ohio. And it dawned on us. We were like, wait a minute. Maybe this thesis is right. Maybe emerging markets are the most compelling place for venture capitalists to invest. But maybe the most compelling emerging market is America, just outside of Silicon Valley. And if we were to be the venture firm that we that was our focus and we invested in, in that opportunity, that would be like making the next Sequoia. And if we were wrong, okay, we'd go back to Silicon Valley. But if we were right, and you could build billion-dollar companies in a city like Columbus, then you could do it in Indianapolis or Chicago or Madison or hundreds of other American cities. And that was the thing that got us excited. That was the thing that we said, if we didn't do this, knowing what we know now, it'd be like committing a crime. We'd be stealing from the future of America because this is the opportunity of being on the forefront of the next economic revolution where we could now take what are the jobs only available to the 1% of people who live in San Francisco in this future economy. And now we can bring them to the rest of the economy. And that was the kind of opportunity that we were excited about. And so obviously a lot of people since, especially in the last couple of years now recognize that same opportunity. But when you guys went, I know there was like a little bit of controversy, I think in part because people weren't used to VCs coming into town and planting a flag. Ohio State, for example, the then chief investment officer was not that excited about writing you guys a huge check. The president of the school, Gordon Gee, at the time said, I want this to happen. Because a lot of fundraising stories don't make it into the press. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how you landed that fund? Because that seems like that helped you obviously get your fund off the ground and get you sort of rooted in Columbus. It's a good question. I mean, when Chris and I decided to go do this, the partners at Sequoia were very supportive. When Chris and I were at Sequoia, we, we were pretty successful at what we did. And I remember when we first started going fundraising, we were at a, a big fund of funds in San Francisco who very often starts a lot of funds going. And he said, we really like you guys. Your track record's amazing. But going to Ohio, you're nuts. I mean, that's where VCs go to die. That makes no sense. If you stay in the Silicon Valley, we'll write you a $40 million check. We'll get you going and on, onward and upward. And, and we said... No, we see this as the upcoming opportunity and we see what is going on in the Midwest. We see what's going on in Ohio. We see all those things. And then to step back, why we saw all that is I was fortunate enough to be running economic development for the state of Ohio for those two years, 2011 and 2012, where I got to not only see a lot of great entrepreneurs, but also meet some great folks at research institutions. Gordon Gee was on my board at Jobs Ohio, I got to meet with a lot of the customers from the CEO to Marathon, to the CEO of P&G, to the CEO of General Motors, to the CEO of General Electric, and so on. And so I really saw the customer concentration. I saw the amazing amount of talent. And then when Chris and I sat down with Gordon Gee and we said, hey, Gordon, we're thinking about doing this crazy idea. Gordon's all, thank goodness someone finally sees it too. And he was very supportive. And he's an amazing visionary himself. I mean, 
from starting at the Supreme Court all the way through all the universities that he's been president of. And, and he saw that. He, and he wasn't one of the only key early investors, but we had three or four other ones who said, forget about the common knowledge of you have to be in the Valley. Let's go try this. So when you guys went, I imagine that you probably had your pick of companies. Tell me if that's correct. And also, I guess if that's changed, especially now in this new COVID era where everybody's striking deals online, who's showing up at the table that you didn't see a few years ago? Well, it might surprise you that we actually didn't have our pick of the companies when we first got here, largely because it was unusual to be a venture capitalist in Ohio. There just aren't a lot of them. And so a lot of entrepreneurs were in unobvious places. And unlike Silicon Valley, where you have entrepreneurs proactively going, they sign up on this super highway of capital where you go from, you go to Y Combinator, then you go to the seed investor and then to the A investor. That, that infrastructure didn't exist here. And so one of the things that was a little bit surprising to us was how much we ended up having to work to originate investment opportunities here in the Midwest. And not because there weren't great investments, just because that connectivity, it just hasn't been built yet. And so we've had to spend a lot of time going out and building that infrastructure from scratch and going into the universities and, and putting new seed managers in business and helping them fundraise and building all of this, this infrastructure so that the next entrepreneur is out here. And it works. In our first year, we had inbound investment flow to drive capital. We saw about 1,800 investment opportunities. The next couple of years, it went from 1,800 to about 3,000. It's now up to about 7,000 inbound opportunities a year, which is more than I've heard any other venture firm say that they see in California. And I don't think it's because we're great. I, I think that's more the scale of the opportunity that's here now. One of the things that we would love to see more of is more venture capitalists coming here because there's certainly more opportunity than we can invest in. And it's not to say the things that we don't invest in are bad investments. They're certainly not. The best thing that could happen is there's more diversity of thought, more venture capitalists backing a greater diversity of ideas out here. And what's exciting about it now with what's going on with COVID is it's become cool, which is crazy. Like it's cool to invest in Ohio. Yeah, cool. I knew that. You know, well, five years ago, seven years ago, trust me, it was considered crazy. And I think what's exciting now is we're starting to see more VCs and more great startups come here. So you don't feel like you've teed up the market for everybody else to come in and plunder? No, not, not at all. I mean, I think basically, again, I, I'm the old guy here. So I remember when Sequoia was started in 1972. My, my father worked with Don Valentine at National Semiconductor. And it was them, Kleiner Perkins, NEA, a couple firms. And what happens is you create this network effect. I'd like to say Chris and our team are brilliant, but we're not. We miss a lot of stuff. Now, instead of that company that we miss having to go to Silicon Valley to go get funded, and then we miss the opportunity completely usually because they're in Silicon Valley versus staying where it's the best place for them to build a company, whether that's in Denver, Atlanta, Columbus, or, or Chicago, better for them to say, well, the only way they're going to stay there if, if we don't invest in a real Series A there's a couple local folks, but primarily it's got to come from the coast. And so the more coastal money we have, and actually the more GPs we actually have locating here, when I start hearing that folks are going to Texas and folks are going to Miami, I think that's fantastic because the opportunity is here. Just to uh, follow up a little bit on Connie's question, who do you see as your major competition? I would say our biggest competitor is the company that doesn't get funded. You asked, do you worry that you created the connectivity for the rest of the venture community to come and plunder? My attitude is 
please come on in, come plunder. Because the worst thing that is happening right now is that I know for sure there are decabillion dollar investments that are not getting made still because they're based here. And while I, I like our infrastructure and our capabilities, I think what's happening now in the Midwest is what happened in New York 10 years ago. Now, if I were to say to you, hey, New York's a great place to build startups. There are so many great startup firms. People would say, yeah, that's undeniable. I think we're just now to the point where you're seeing this consistent pipeline of Midwestern uh, unicorns start to get liquidity through public offerings, through acquisitions, and, and it's starting to repeat itself every single year. The problem that we have right now is the plundering happens in the Midwest, just to stick to that term. The plundering happens on a, on a one-off basis, right? So Redpoint comes in, invests in one company in Ann Arbor, or Benchmark comes in, invests in one company in, in Indianapolis, or you know whoever. They're not making this their primary business. Mm -hmm. And until we see more venture capitalists showing up here saying, this is all I do every single day. I, I fear that that next opportunity that we're missing won't get its funding. And we are so far out of whack on the number of opportunities versus the number of venture capitalists here that we need more of that. And I think the other thing we need is that diversity of thought so that we could trade with other venture firms where we'll invest in the A round and then someone else will invest in the B round or vice versa, because there are definitely great entrepreneurs that we've met with out here who have business plans that are just too capital intensive for us to invest in them. Some of the very best investments in Silicon Valley, think about Google. That was done between Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia. Some of the very best companies are done when venture firms can partner and then entrepreneurs then have access to a larger Rolodex, a larger pool of capital, all the things that they need to grow their business. So a few questions, guys. First, you said you, you're getting 7,000 startups reaching out to you a year. How many are you able to fund? I published Strictly VC, and looking back over the year, I know there's probably a lot of deals that haven't been announced, but it looked like maybe like 10 last year. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it's, it's usually about with our two funds right now, it's eight to 10, eight to 12, but that's a good range. Because you're saying you need more VCs. What is the case for all these guys? Because honestly, at some point, Austin's going to be like, please stop coming here. We don't want you to turn Austin into Silicon Valley. It really does seem that Austin and Miami are top of mind for everybody. Make the case for Columbus. What are they missing? I think, first of all, when you look at Austin until just recently, there was almost no VC there. Yes, Apple was there. Yes, you know, all the was there. Live, right. Yes, there's almost no VC. Right. So the VC that's coming in is, is very new. I mean, we've been looking at Austin companies for quite some time. Miami, to my knowledge, until a couple of folks recently like Keith, I don't think there was anybody there of any, of any size. Right. Chris talked about New York a little bit. I remember sitting around the table in 2000, 2001, as a coy, we were talking about, oh, should, before, this is before we went to Israel, before we went to China, going, should we just go to Boston or New York or Austin? And we looked at New York and we said, ah, you can't build a VC company in New York. You can't find startups in New York. In the early 2000s, there was almost no VC. And then Fred Wilson comes out and says, oh, I think you, you can do it. And then there was this date I saw the other day around 2010, there were about 10 or 15 companies funded in New York of greater than $10 million. Well, then all of a sudden, everyone goes, well, Fred Wilson's doing it. Now other people, well, now in the last year, the data I saw was well over 300 companies that received fundings of over $10 million. So back to Chris's point, if you put a circle around Columbus, uh, a one-day car drive, 
we are in 60% of the GDP of America, over 50%. We're 60% of the population. We're a huge percentage of all the top customers. And so the reason why Chris and I, when we sat down and looked at this, we said, where should we put Drive? Yeah, I was already living in Columbus, but we really were very focused on where's the best place to put it. We talked about Chicago. We looked at Indianapolis. But when we looked at it, we said, no, Columbus is in the middle of it all. And what we're able to do then is attract and easily travel to a Chicago, an Indianapolis, a Pittsburgh, a Cleveland, a Cincinnati, and quick flights to Minneapolis, and so on and so forth. So a roundabout way to answer your question is, we think Ohio and we think the Midwest is a spectacular place to build companies. I mean, when we started here, there wasn't a whole bunch of economic entrepreneurial activity. And we now have 14-ish companies in, in, in Columbus, of which... Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's around 12 of them we either moved here or started. So only a couple of the companies were actually native here to to, to Columbus. So why are they here now? It's because of us. Now, imagine a benchmark or imagine the name your firm came here. It's not going to decrease the opportunity. It's going to create a network effect. It's like Metcalf's law, right? It's going to be a logarithmic gain versus just a linear gain in the amount of dollars that's here. You talked about starting companies, and I, I noticed on your team you have a director of engineering and several software engineers. Can you talk a little bit about that strategy? Well, one of the things you learn very quickly that's different about the Midwest is it's not a city. It's a nation. And you have to set up your infrastructure differently if you're going to be successful investing into that nation. There's just a lot of ground to cover. And one of the things that we have been able to do is to look at venture capital and say, look, there are a lot of rote, repetitive tasks that venture capitalists do. And what if we could eliminate the rote, repetitive task from being a venture capitalist? Then we don't need to hire the boiler room of Ivy League grads to cold call the entire phone book and annoy all the entrepreneurs and do all that. We can do more homework in an automated fashion and make sure that when we are engaging with an entrepreneur, that it's only an entrepreneur that has a high probability of being something in which we want to at least have a subsequent meeting with, maybe not figure out how much to invest in. So that was the idea that we had. And so we built this, sticking with our car analogy, we started to build the first autonomous drive car, which we stuck with Herbie because that was the original one that we could find. And our engineering team has done a wonderful job of building this software platform that we're able to use to automate these rote repetitive tasks out of being venture capitalists. And now it's expanded. So now not only can Herbie help us identify, hey, these are the entrepreneurs that have the highest probability of turning into investments, but these are the highest people for our portfolio companies who have the highest probability of joining your startup or, hey, these are the venture capitalists who have the highest probability of investing in your follow-on round of capital. And so we've been able to use this technology platform to extend not just what we do as venture capitalists, but our entrepreneurs do in a venture capitalist portfolio. And it's automated so much of our workload. Chris, part of that sounds a little bit like what a firm out here, SignalFire, is doing in terms of trying to find the right employees for startups. So your system does that too. It's kind of tracking who's coming and going. and It does. It's taken us a long time. This is one of those things where being in Columbus was a huge benefit because if I were to say, do this in Silicon Valley, it's just a really hard thing to do. You'd get a list of 10,000 companies. When we started in Columbus, it came back with a list of 17. And we were like, well, that one's wrong. And you forgot these five. And so we were able to tweak those algorithms early on and then expand it out from there. And I think it's been very, very successful. Has a GP from a major Silicon Valley firm set up an office near you? I thought it was interesting that Nar- Naria Capital 
Yep. Founded by JD uh, Vance. Yep. JD Vance. Uh, um, that, although I'm curious, have you guys seen them in deals? I've only seen a couple of their deals announced. I don't know if they're just low flying yeah. or they're. Oh yeah, be- no, no. I think oh, yeah. our, our joke is always the same thing. If a billion dollar company exits in the Midwest and TechCrunch doesn't write about it, did it happen? He's been very active, and I, I think is is a wonderful example of somebody picking up and moving from Silicon Valley. I know there's other people too. We're just not very good at marketing, or the marketers are not as interested in stories out here. But there's a lot of other folks. Another one would be Rafael Corrales, who moved to Madison, Wisconsin, is a prolific seed investor out of Silicon Valley. But also there is this emerging seed ecosystem where you've got incredibly successful entrepreneurs and researchers coming out of schools like Carnegie Mellon or UIUC. And you're giving them some funding, it sounded like you mentioned earlier. We have. Yeah, we've partnered with a number of these funds to try and help them. And not just it's not just investing money. I think it's more about investing the Rolodex to help them get up and running because there's just not enough of them out here. One one other thing, just to just to say one quick thing on that is you mentioned Ohio State's investment in us. They also invested in the Ohio Innovation Fund, which they got a a GP from the Bay Area and started a fund here in Ohio. It's about a $70 million fund. So we weren't the only ones when they believed in this. They went for it and did it with, with two of us. I guess in terms of exits, so I saw that you had a company, Root Insurance, that went public in November, which I thought was interesting because it's a young company, as these things go, five years old. And its performance is, I just looked before we caught on the phone and it's been a little bit down. I don't know if you can speculate as to why that is, but tell me a little bit about that investment and also why you took it public or why maybe it went public. I assume you encouraged it to go public earlier than has been the case with a lot of companies out here. Sure. So I think the answer is because that was the absolute best place for the company to build its business. It's not an exit event. Nobody sold a single share in the company, right? This is something where we looked at the IPO as an opportunity to bring on investors in a public market into not a Silicon Valley company necessarily. This is an insurance company. This company needs access to capital. This is the company that needs a balance sheet. It needs to have access to debt capital markets. And frankly, the company was able to prove out an underwriting model that has proven to be fantastic and far better than any of the incumbent products that are out there. It's interesting because by any stretch, if you told me that you could invest in a company that'd be worth $4 billion five years from now, would you do it? I'd say, yeah. So I'd say that's pretty successful. And I think that as a transition to the public markets, they're proving a bunch of things out to a new crop of investors and they're figuring it out and will continue to, to do so from here. Another company that I saw, this is so interesting, is Olive, a Columbus company that has developed AI for healthcare. It analyzes data for insurance claims and supply claims. Did this company raise three rounds last year? They did. That's remarkable. So like a $50 million round, and then like $100 million, and then 225 in December? Yeah. What happened there? What's so exciting about this company? It's an eight and a half year old company that went bananas. Yeah, it's an eight and a half year old company that's an overnight success, right? And raises three rounds. I mean, I think what you're finding is that this is a company that has an entrepreneur who is excellent at iterating. And I, to be totally honest with you, I don't think this company would have survived if it was based in Silicon Valley because the company's first product iteration was a failure. So it was its second, so was its 15th, so was its 22nd. It was actually product iteration number 27 that ended up being the one that's in the market today and is driving all the success. And now that it's got so much momentum and it's got so much proof, obviously the investment community has been a lot more enthusiastic about continuing to invest in it. And it's a company that relative 
to what the entrepreneur was capable of doing was undercapitalized. And so finally, for the first time ever, have had the opportunity to raise enough capital for the business to be in a position where they can continue to dominate in their, their market position. And so you're saying it was able to iterate because it had such low expenses operating out of Columbus? I, I would say it's three or four things. One is obviously cost of capital, but the, the most important thing is close to customer. And so when you're close to the customer, you can constantly iterate with the customers. Exact Target did the same thing. I mean, I actually funded a company that was competitor to them when I was at Sequoia, and we just failed miserably because we we're trying to find the market and Exact Target was next to the customer constantly iterating. And Sean's been able to do that at all. As Chris said, it's been a, a long and winding road. It's actually our very first investment. It's the investment we made actually before we had the fund raised. So it's been a long winding road. He's done a, ph- a phenomenal job. So is that a difference in style between your approach at Drive Capital and what you used to do at Sequoia? Because I would imagine at Sequoia, perhaps there would be maybe less rope for an entrepreneur to go and explore different iterations of a product. I think what's unique about Olive is, I mean, this is a founder who has an incredible amount of grit. And if you were to come in and pitch the and see his pitch to the partnership, and obviously you've seen the rest of the investment community resonate with it as well now too. This is an entrepreneur who had a connection to this problem in the healthcare system, a very personal connection to it. And he's never going to give up. And so I'd love to believe that we're the only venture capitalists that would continue to believe in a founder through 27 iterations. And maybe we are, but I think that if he were to have walked into Sequoia, that he would have gotten just as many rounds of funding, whether it had been Benchmark or been Kleiner or any other place. What we've just seen in Sean is an entrepreneur who's got that capability of iterating through it. What's a little bit unique about doing it in Ohio, though, is that the rest of the team is stuck around. You don't have this phenomenon in Ohio where you have engineers playing portfolio manager where they go to one company for a year, they hit their cliff, and then they go to the next company. I think what's unique here is that Sean's been able to retain his team as he's worked through all these iterations. You had the chance to reinvent the VC model when you started your own firm. Are there any things that you did in setting up Drive that were different than what you'd experienced at Sequoia? It's interesting. Chris and I were just talking about this yesterday. We're very fortunate to have worked at Sequoia. I mean, Sequoia by far is the best firm out there, in my opinion. And we often use the phrase, what would Sequoia do? We built a lot of things around that. But the thing that we weren't is we weren't Sequoia. So there were many things that we had to do that Sequoia had maybe have done 50 years ago or 40 years ago, but today doesn't have to do that. And so we've had to build a lot of these capabilities, Chris had mentioned before, building some of the infrastructure, whether, you know, helping lawyers understand how to do series A term sheets here or finding headhunters or doing all of those sorts of things. And then also we are not in a situation where everyone is coming into the office. I mean, Sequoia, they're kind of in the catsbird seat. So they see a lot of wonderful, wonderful companies that just ring them up. That's why we had to really be very focused on our outbound efforts. So I'd say 60, 70% of what we've done, we, we learned at Sequoia, but the rest we had to, to make specific to what we're doing here at Drive. How big a net do you cast geographically? It's pretty big. At this point, it's massive. I think when we started out with the first fund, we really focused within this really tight ring that is just the Midwest and really just three or four cities within the Midwest. I think what we've now seen and what we've proven out is that this is not just a Midwest phenomenon. This is really an American or even a North American phenomenon. 
And so at this point, if you were to look at our portfolio, you'd see companies in Denver, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Toronto, Austin. I think what we're finding is that this opportunity is a broader phenomenon that we're investing in. So our attitude is we'll invest in the very best companies wherever they are going to be built, where they're strongest, where the entrepreneurs are convincing us that I should build my company in Atlanta because uh, that's where my customers are. That's where I've got a density of talent. That's where I've got a system of financial resources that I've got better access to than I would in, in other places. And so it's expanded pretty dramatically from that first fund for sure. I guess then how do you differentiate yourselves as you take on more of the country? It's still basically the thesis is finding founders who don't look like traditional founders or like what are you looking for different metrics? Yeah. I mean, what, one of the things that we've been very careful to do is to make sure that we're investing in the infrastructure before we invest LP dollars into any of these cities. We're investing our own infrastructure so that we can service those companies as well as we do anywhere else. So look, I'd love to tell you that we'd invest in a company in Sioux City, Iowa. It's a wonderful place. It's really, really hard for us to say that we would do that because we just haven't made an investment there and we haven't invested in the talent infrastructure or in the landlord infrastructure or in the lawyers or in the headhunters or in all these little things that entrepreneurs need after you've invested the capital are things that we view as our role and our responsibility to support these businesses. So before we'll invest into any of these cities, we've had to go in the same way we did into Columbus. And we've had to, to meet with the landlords because landlords out here are not built for startups. They're built for legacy companies and they want to see five years of trailing financials and they want a massive security deposit. And it's like, well, I, I don't have that if you're right, a startup. Right, right, right. How interesting. So too with the headhunters. There are phenomenal headhunters in Ohio. They're totally different than the ones that are successful in Denver or in Atlanta because those talent networks are, are very localized. And so we've we've had to be sure that we do that. Now that we've done that, now that we've invested in an infrastructure and we've got a density of companies in a lot of the cities that I just mentioned, now we can help. And now we can be very different from uh, a venture firm that's just going to zoom in for quarterly board meetings. I think you know, we've got a partnership now that's expanded where we're investing people resources and we're in these cities on a weekly basis. So you have expanded, you have something like what, eight investors now on staff? Is that right? Nine. Or nine? Okay. Yeah, nine. So seven-year-old firm, nine investors. Now your predecessor, Sequoia, I don't know if predecessor is the right word, but has, you know, is a massive investment firm at this point, multiple billions of dollars under management all over the world. What is your aspiration? Where do you want to take drive in the next five to 10 years? Do you want to raise a billion dollar fund? I think you raised your last funds. You're raising like 350 million across two funds right now. Our last one was 650 million. Yeah. Are you going to take the benchmark approach and stay where you are? Or how are you thinking about this? The way I look at it is, again, Sequoia is an amazing firm and, and has done some fantastic things. You got to remember, Sequoia was started in 1972. They made their Apple investment in 77, 78. Oracle was in the 80s. So we're in that stage of the company. What we need to do is create and give back multiples of money to our investors. So we have to find and curate and grow the best companies in the Midwest and, and now across America. The, the one thing that Sequoia very, is very focused on is they want to be the investor for the entrepreneur from seed stage all the way through to wherever that goes. And so that's why in our last fundraising, we created our overdrive fund, which is if you're going to put it in VC parlance, an early growth fund or an expansion stage fund. For example, in Root, 
we were not able to participate in the C&D round because we didn't have the funds available to do that. When the overdrive fund happened, we were able to participate in the E round. And so what we want to do is build that capability over time and, and then create funds that actually meet the investment returns that our LPs would like. We want to be there for the whole life cycle of the entrepreneur eventually. Guys, I want to let you go. I appreciate all of your time, but I did want to ask you one quick question because listeners and readers are really still very interested in this stuff, which is SPACs. And this is something that I'd actually talked to Roloff Botha about at Sequoia back in the fall. And he said they're talking about it. I don't know if we're going to see one out of Sequoia, but is that something that you are thinking about at all, either to potentially fund one of your companies that wants to go public or else to get involved in a later stage company that you missed earlier on? I think there's a cycle of these things that comes around. Right now it's SPACs. A couple of years ago, we had ICOs. A couple of years before that, it was the AIM. There was also second market. I think we've seen lots of attempts at innovation on capital markets. And frankly, having seen firsthand how the IPO process works, it needs to happen. There is an opportunity to innovate in capital markets. Not sure if SPACs are the answer to that yet. We look at Drive and say, look, where are we here to innovate? We're here to innovate by investing in entrepreneurs that would not have normally otherwise gotten access to capital. Every one of our companies, the story would be if Drive hadn't invested in them, no venture capital firm would have invested in them. And so we're going to focus our efforts on in innovating on our investment platform and supporting those companies as opposed to on the, the capital markets. But it certainly doesn't mean we're not going to look at them. We're definitely taking a look at SPACs and we're looking at everything else and, and always doing whatever we can to find the best way to finance our companies. Well, guys, again, I could take up much more of your time, but I think that would be selfish of me. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time. And yeah. any, any time, and you got to come back to Columbus. We got to show you what's going on. Here. I know, I know. I've heard it's changed so much. I mean, I loved it when I lived there a million years ago, but anyway, guys, thank you again. I appreciate it. Thanks again. Bye. See ya. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Strictly VC Download. Stay tuned for next week when my parents slash overlords are talking with a high-profile investment team that you'll definitely want to hear from. Have a great week.